we have marketed marketing in an absolutely divisive way and actually split the community as opposed to recognizing that there's just a new way of marketing and these two things need to be integrated and live together. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get stronger and smarter. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of the nonprofit trade association, MMA Global. And that voice you heard at the top is Vineet Mira, the chief marketing officer of the financial technology firm, Chime. He's been in that role for a year and a half and previously worked at a range of companies, including Good Eggs, Ancestry.com, Johnson Johnson, Walgreens, and Novartis. Vineet is also on the global board of directors here at the MMA. Today on Building Better CMOs, Vineet and I are gonna talk a lot about brand as performance, or is it brand versus performance, or is it storytelling performance? He and I have a lot of views, MMA's got a lot of research, we'll let you decide which way it is. Now this podcast is all about the challenges marketers face and unlocking the true power that marketing can have. Vineet Mera from Chime is gonna tell us how to do that right after this. Vineet, so great to have you on Building Better CMOs today. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here, Greg. Listen, I know you, listen, you've been on the board for a little bit, not too long, but I know you well enough to know I think you and I are going to have some good spirited discussions today because I think you like that. So this is going to be a lot of fun. And listen, I'm from Brooklyn, so I'm all in. Let's go. Let's go. I'm not sure all the listeners here would be familiar with Chime. You want to just give a little background on Chime so they understand the context of the business you're operating in. I mean, it's a classic Silicon Valley business. So yeah. So give us some of that story. That'd be great. Yeah, so Chime is a really hyper fast growing financial technology company that was essentially built to serve everyday Americans, you know, the 60 to 70% of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck with essentially fair, transparent, and accessible products. We pioneered, in essence, right in the wake of the financial crisis about eight or nine years ago, a new approach to banking and industry-breaking sort of products like fee-free banking, getting paid two days early when you direct deposit with us, SpotMe, which is our $200 overdraft protection where you can get overdraft protection with no fees. So we essentially came in and disrupted a lot of, I would say, legacy practices from the traditional banks that were not serving the vast majority of Americans. And we've had some hyper growth over the years and become one of the largest players in the financial services space by bringing these products to market. Yeah, no, I understood that as a transparency dynamic, that that's what it's focused on. And I'm fortunate enough to have a bookkeeper who keeps track of my personal financials. And I, I look at what the banking service fees I pay every year, and I didn't even know I'd agreed to them. I mean, you know, but there, it, there's a kind of a silliness to some of that. And if you're not in the right place, it can be really complicated for people. I totally got it. And you know, Vinny, the really funny thing about this one is that was started by Chris Britt. He's the singular founder, I think. And he used to work for me. I think if I'm right, his first job, it was in the dot-com. I was at um, I was the head of Corp Dev at a dot-com ad tech company. And uh, he came in to help us do Corp Dev. It was a classic business. We went public at $17 a share. Within 10 months, it went to $170 a share. And a year after that, it was $1.70 a share. So, you know, it was a very fast high. <laughs> it was what classic dot com. As I said to people, I moved to San Francisco. I, I moved for the boom and I stayed for the bust. And it all happened pretty darn close to each other. But Chris is great. I love it. I'm it's super excited. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a lot of years, but it's super great to see him do well. And I couldn't be more excited that he's got you there to help. So that's great. 
Yeah, Chris is awesome. It's actually co-founded by Chris Britt and Ryan King. Oh, was it two of them? Okay, co-founded. Thank you. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Yeah. They're just awesome. And you know, the impact this company has made on the industry is pretty amazing. I think we've eliminated half of the fees in the industry as everyone else has tried to copy us and has to respond to the impact we're making. So yeah, I love that. I assume too, we don't have to spend a lot. I mean, it's not really about time, but I'm just kind of I'm assuming that what their solution was in part was to apply a series of technology orientation rather than a branch-based service element. So they were able to lower their own costs, which means they could didn't have to pass those, find ways to in, maybe non-transparently pass those costs onto consumers. Or, is that right? Yeah. I mean, and that's why at our core, we're a technology company, right? We don't have branches. We don't have tellers. We are essentially operating like a direct-to-consumer financial tech company that offers banking services. And that's allowed us to create a very different operating structure and cost base using technology to differentiate and creating essentially a new business model for the industry, which has allowed us to eliminate fees and all those things that traditionally were the way banks made money. Do you guys publicly disclose how many customers? We don't. We're still a private company and uh, you know how that goes, having been in a few of those. Totally got that and appreciate it. Yeah, no, very smart. Really well done. I'm super, like I said, I'm super, super excited. So listen, you know, we're going to talk about marketing. We're going to get into the main topic here in in just a moment, Vinit. I don't usually spend a lot of time, you know, like I said, I don't like to do a lot of CMO worship on the, uh, you know, on the, on the podcast if I can help it because I'm here to, you know, my job is to help solve problems. And first of all, I've got to admit there's a problem. But uh, you have a very interesting background. So raised in Canada, joined P&G, ended up going to Singapore, has spent some time in India, back to Canada, then back to US and then Europe. Like, kind of, you know, I don't know. We want to make it too long. It's a long history, but we don't have to give it all. But, but give a sense of people like where you've been through here. Yeah. So I always start at the very beginning. I mean, how I even learned about marketing. I was, I'm just a first generation Indian kid, you know, raised in Canada by parents who knew nothing about marketing. I didn't know anything about it. I grew up in this small General Motors town in Canada, a little town called Oshawa. It's like the Flint, Michigan of Canada. And I didn't know what was what. I didn't even know marketing was a thing. I had this grade 11 teacher named Mr. Zuli. Okay. And he saw I had a real interest in this marketing class I just happened to take. And he one day came to me and said, okay, Vinit, I'm going to give you $50 out of my pocket. Let's see what you can do with it. Wow. He gave me $50. I went to a lollipop convention and I bought all these lollipops, put them in the store, in the hallway of the school, sold out. And by the end of the year, we had like Coke coolers. We had distribution of like Hostess. <laughs> it became a huge profit center for the school. And it just taught me the power of business, you know, marketing. And actually, the funny story is he was actually an ex PNGer turned middle schooler teacher. And he essentially kind of told me about what Procter & Gamble was. And from there, I set that as a goal. And I thought that was a great place to start 25 years ago to learn marketing. And that was the school. I love it. Listen, I got in the P&G business from an agency perspective very early on. I loved working in the company. But now listen, P&G though took you to Singapore. You've done Singapore, you've done India. Yeah, so my career was super global. Started in Canada, took me over to India, back to Canada. Then I went to Singapore and kind of managed some of our beauty businesses for Asia Pacific there and really got to learn that market. Back to the US and I entered the consumer health sort of world in CPG. And actually that eventually took me to Switzerland where my son was born. And I lived in Switzerland for about four or five years, ran European marketing for a large consumer health business, came back to the US, joined Johnson & Johnson 
eventually ended up as the president of the baby care division there, kind of 30 years old, and thought I'd made it. And the first 10, 12 years of my CPG career were just super global. And I'm really thankful for the experiences. But eventually, you kind of gave up the sort of high-flying J&J. I mean, listen, you were pretty young to be in a role like that and said, "Uh, enough of this. It's funny, you kind of go through life thinking you have these goals and you think you've kind of made it. And similar to the story of how I grew up, I got exposed to what else was happening in the world. And I realized that although I thought I'd reached sort of a major goal and a milestone, which I set for myself, which I had... I realized the world was changing around me and I realized I had to get to the West Coast. I had to get into Silicon Valley. And I took one of many pay cuts in my life, moved out to the Bay Area and started as CMO and Chief Revenue Officer of Ancestry.com. And we kind of created that consumer genetic revolution that happened for two or three years in our industry. And I started to really transform myself into much more of a full stack CMO rather than a kind of brand CMO and started to realize that that's where the world was headed. And I'm really glad I did. Listen, you know, I had a conversation with uh, one of the bigger CMOs in the world a little while ago. And I says, I think the job of the MMA, the job of Greg Stewart here is to help transpose all those brand CMOs to be customer experience CMOs. And it was very funny, Vinny, she didn't hesitate. As fast as you could respond, she goes, that's my journey. She said, now I got to figure out how I spend a billion dollars doing it. She had some pretty big budgets. But, you know, like that was it. That is the transition. Like, you're right. It's a data-driven world. The whole thing's going to change. Well, good. Well, we're going to get into all that. That's going to be really exciting. I love your story about your teacher, by the way. I think I actually got my marketing interest because there was a business that I was doing in college that only today is legal. And I think that's what got me all excited (laughs) about getting into, you know, Mark, I was studying sales, distribution, you know, partnerships, you know, it was a lot of good things, you know, whatever. I'm... For the board's purposes, I am uh, I don't do that anymore, so to be clear. <laughs> Let's jump into it here because it'd be a lot of fun. So I always like to ask this question. This sets up the whole thing, okay? Because this is, again, not about CMO worship. This is about really understanding. There's no place for that. It's about understanding how do we collectively make marketing better, which I knew you have some great points of view on. So the question is here, what do you think marketing, CMOs, and not to be derogatory to them in any way, but... What do you think they maybe don't fully understand? What does the industry not really fully understand? What do you think we'd be better off if we did better appreciate? What do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And being sort of introspective and constantly aiming to improve, I think is really important. So I appreciate what you guys do here on this podcast. I think there's a couple of things. The first thing is, I think we as an industry, and I think us as CMOs, as leaders of industry own this have divided ourselves between this idea of brand marketing and then performance marketing. And we've sort of acted as if brand marketing shouldn't be performative or something, and performance marketing shouldn't build brand. And we have this sort of East Coast, West Coast dynamic going on in our industry. (laughs) I I kind of refer to it as a a biggie sort of (laughs) dynamic. And the truth is, I think we've sort of done it to ourselves. And instead of integrating our worlds and realizing that all of this is now marketing, we have marketed marketing in an absolutely divisive way and actually split the community as opposed to recognizing that There's just a new way of marketing, and these two things need to be integrated and live together. And a term that I frequently use to bring these things together is called performance storytelling that, in in my opinion, sort of brings all this together. We can talk a little bit more about that. But I think this divisiveness in our 
industry has been created by us. It's been fostered by us and has created credibility issues where literally you'll see job descriptions where a CEO or a board will be like, I want a brand CMO. I want a performance CMO. And it's like, we should all aim to be able to pull this all together. And the truth is that is our industry now. And we have to accept that. And you know, if we're not building the skills and who have the curiosity to learn the full stack, I think our credibility as an industry is going to be very hurt. You know, Vinny, I'll 100% validate that because, you know, obviously I talked to a lot of CMOs during the year and I talked to a lot of sort of marketing departments just in my capacity here at the MMA. And what's interesting, I always describe it like this. I go, if you talk to the brand people, they will say, and I've heard them, I've had these conversations, I've organized these discussions. They'll say the performance people are ruining the business. They don't appreciate consumer brand equity and they're going to destroy the long-term nature of this business. If you talk to the performance people, their viewpoint is that the brand people are full of rainbows and unicorns. They have no measurable goals. and They have no idea what the hell they're doing. So it's silly because they do play a role. Because listen, I mean, brand shows up as an intangible asset on balance sheets. It sure as hell matters to a business, right? If we can measure it there, it matters. And I think it's ultimately a CMO's role is to bring these communities together as leaders, right? I mean... If that's happening in our own organizations, shame on us as an industry. Ultimately, a CMO's job is to conduct an orchestra of lots of different groups. And the truth is, marketing is becoming a function of specialism. You know, it used to be tech was a bunch of specialists. I think marketing as a function is now becoming a function of specialists, and that literally the job of a CMO is to conduct this orchestra, bring it all together, and help people see the big picture. And until we do that, we're going to be in a world of pain as CMOs because we will get divided because we are dividing ourselves. And this absolutely has to be addressed in our industry. Hence your career path, why you went to learn so many other areas. I got it. I understand the full stack holistic. So Vineet, let's address the first question on that though, I think that comes up, which is that brand isn't often treated as performance right? You can feel free to pivot or disagree with the questions. I think some CMOs have often said, well, you know, we need to do it, but you can tell they don't really have any business foundation for doing it. They don't really know what it means. They haven't really necessarily thought that through, it seems like to me sometimes. So how do you first look at brand as a practice or as a value creator for a business? Talk a little bit about that. To answer that question, let's sort of if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of connect the idea of brand building and performance marketing and try to sort of talk about this holistically so we don't do the job of sort of dividing it. So here's what I'll share with you. It is factual that eight out of the top 10 Fortune 500 companies were actually founded before the internet and digital marketing and performance marketing was created. They have built their brands with decades of advertising. So something is right about brand, right? And this is the first decade of my CPG career where you're not direct to consumer, but there's something in between yourself and sort of the consumer being able to access you. And I worked on P&G business for years, so I'm totally in alignment that the power that they were able to develop in the market they did absolutely worked, 100%. Check. But for every McDonald's, P&G, Coca-Cola, Apple... There are actually millions of smaller startups, especially over the last kind of couple of decades as VC funding has entered, and a lot of this is fueling this rise of smaller startups, that I would say pass through sort of these murky waters of sort of fame and fortune, right? These small startups that become really buzzy for a little while. 
And then they silently sink into obscurity, right? You start hearing from them less over time and quietly they go away. And so these are brands that have largely used sort of, I would say, performance marketing as a more effective way to grow. But the truth is, performance marketing alone, I think we can say, is not creating powerhouse brands. And there's a reason for that. It's because brand needs to be attached to performance marketing to do that. So let me just kind of go into that for a second. Go. So big brands, for those of us that have worked across the ecosystem, understand something that a lot of people don't. It's that most people for a brand are actually future customers. It sounds trite, but let's really think about what that means. Most customers that a brand will gain a lifetime business actually currently don't even know you exist. Like Chime, for instance, a lot of people know about us, but there's a lot more people that don't know about us. They're actually not even aware of the product or service we're selling. And the truth is big brands really get this and grow by chasing both current and future customers at the same time. So what they do is they reach sort of mass audiences through big media channels like TV and print, which by the way, from a reach standpoint are still the most profitable forms of advertising. But they sort of are constantly building these kind of future customer profiles. Whereas the role of performance marketing then is to sort of sweep up the intent that already exists in an industry. So you're not actually creating future customers, you're actually kind of sweeping up the intent that already exists. So essentially, the way I look at this is brand building is about really positioning your brand in the minds of the world and ensuring that people are aware of sort of what your brand offers and that there is a product or service to meet an unmet need in the market. And performance marketing is about then pulling that in and sweeping up the intent and converting those customers into your business. Okay. Performance marketing alone eventually will die off and it'll become unsustainable because future customer building won't be happening. You won't be creating future demand. Brand on its own will not work eventually because at some point, you need to be able to convert those customers directly into your business. And so the truth is, it's all performative. They just work on different parts of your funnel. And we've got to pull all of this together into a singular, cohesive narrative and way of working as marketers. You know, the MMA has been doing some research we call brand as performance. So we now have actual data around this. Now, to be fair to the listener, it's very limited. We've only done two studies at this point, so I don't want to overstate it, but we're starting to see some already trends in that. And it all validates just what you're saying. We know, for example, that once a consumer is favorable, the cost of acquisition is 87% less. It's one-sixth the cost if the customer is favorable. So, you know, I think you said a little bit differently, I think, but to not have softened the beaches or softened the entry point or something, you know, then we've kind of missed the point. Like what we don't get is that we tend to think a brand as just upper funnel, but it actually tremendously supports the lower funnel, which I think is just what you're saying. Am I getting that right? You got it. And I actually refer to this and something I've read about is this idea of the CAC valley of death that happens in performance marketing without brand. Yes. Because essentially what happens is the economics of performance marketing can quickly become unsustainable just because of the way the business model is set up. Correct. What I think happened, and listen, I think what you're referring to there is very popular here for the middle teens around these direct-to-consumer companies that were doing so well. Challenge was is that many of them did not grow to big businesses. 
they hit a point and they stopped because they had taken off the top of the marketplace and that was all they were going to get. And there was no ability or room to grow because they didn't have an orientation of that. And I mean, brand is an investment at some level. It pays now. We do brand now. We produce some sales. I think the challenge we've had, though, Vinny, is that we marketers, and this is the problem MMA is out to sell, we don't know how to explain to the CFO the value of investing into brand. Do you guys think you've cracked that code? I mean, we think we have some indication of insight around that now, but we don't really know. I think it's a harder thing to measure in the short term. Brand is just, it's more of an investment than it is a short-term thing. So the way I try to do it is I try to explain actually the other way around. So if you think about performance marketing alone, it is literally designed to only reach sort of the small number of people that are actively shopping for your brand at any given time. Okay. If you really think about performance marketing, you end up fighting over a small number of active, aware, or like, as you said, like kind of favorable shoppers. It's almost like rats in a barrel. And then this competition then over time leads to skyrocketing advertising costs in the CPM world of these bidding auctions. And then once demand that you have is exhausted, this performance marketing traps you in spiraling acquisition costs to become unsustainable. And so by making the case that at some point, if you're not building above performance marketing, creating awareness, favorability, positioning, and demand, Mm -hmm. the model of performance marketing and the auction process of performance marketing at some point just stops working. And that's why you see these companies not becoming big over time because they get to a certain point and they run out of new customers or future customers. And essentially now you're bidding over a small group of interested customers and that supply demand causes costs to go up. And that's the CAC value of death. So the way I talk about a little bit is performance marketing will get us to a point, but at some point it's going to be unsustainable. So we've actually got to fuel future demand so that these two things come together and that makes the whole machine work more efficiently over time. Does that vary by sector? And let me tell you why I'm asking that question. I wonder if that varies by sector because if you take some, let's go back to your P&G days, right? Okay, so listen, people were going to buy a limited number of uh, rolls of paper towels during the year, but they're going to have a need. And so some of that performance or short term is oriented to try to be, it's a concept of recency, right? How do I stay in front of the consumer so that when they are ready to purchase, I have an opportunity to sort of take them off the table and get them. What I've heard a lot of marks don't understand is that they tend to think that their highest volume customers don't shop at the places where high cat. There's a huge group of high category shoppers that switch a lot, and so to continue to be in the market, to be in front of them, if you can just incrementally get one more purchase, it's a good deal to have. So I think performance can work in that regard. I think what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, is that you're saying is like people don't buy Chime again and again and again per se. You you buy once. You're trying to constantly sort of seed that market so that when they are ready to make a change in decision, that you have an opportunity to best to, to make that one decision they may make over a couple of years. Is that the way to look at it? Ancestry.com may have been the same thing I wonder too. I, I don't know. I have to think about that. But I think it works for both. I mean, if you think about it, the metric on brand that I look at the most is frankly unaided awareness. And that's a lot of what CPG does, right? It's top of mind awareness. So when you're in the category, and like you said, in CPG, the frequency is much higher. So top of mind awareness and constantly being right there when you think of a category is very, very important. But I think that's important for all categories because even though in banking services, you may not be switching constantly you're always on the lookout for wanting to find a better solution for your financial progress and well-being. 
And so you want to be there top of mind in an unaided sort of way, right? Those aided awareness is a strange metric because it's very, you're helping the consumer out a lot. But that unaided sort of top of mind awareness is very critical so that when that person is ready, they know who you are. And then when they go in lower in the funnel with higher intent, you're ready to sweep them up because you've got a great direct response or performance marketing engine. So I think my point is it's actually the best marketers and the brands and businesses that are going to get big over time are going to know how to do both really well, are going to be world-class on both ends of that spectrum. And I think that's how we've got to talk about this more and more. I think brand is performative. I think direct response is performative. It's all performative, just doing different jobs for us. Brand is performance over time. And by the way, Vin, I'll actually give you the data. I'm not sure if you've been in the meetings where we've talked about this so far, but we actually now know, and by the way, just so you know, this was for Ally. So pretty relevant. $100 earned today is worth $140 additional over time. We never knew that. Nobody in marketing had built the methodology to assess that and figure it out. MMA did. I spent a year doing it with a bunch of experts and the members to figure out. And what we're doing is we're basically doing two MTA studies, one now, one nine, 12 months out. And we're doing longitudinal. We're like tracking exactly the same people. So we can watch their degradation in brand because, you know, the part of the challenge of brand is that I don't, I don't remember the data exactly from the study. I think, I think brand degrades it's 20 or 30% degrades every half year or something like that. Like you really lose a lot. People don't keep it. You know, I'm sure some people do, but not everybody does. So that you got to constantly refresh. That's why you could be back in the market with brand all the time. But we do know that just pure brand advertising over time does pay. And I don't think we've ever been able to explain to the CFO that's the real value of this. Yeah. And I give you guys, I did see that study and I give you guys a ton of credit for the work you've done. And the more we continue to find those insights, the more we continue to do these analytics, the better off we'll be going back to your original question of what do I think are the challenges in our industry? And we have to stop talking about these things as separate. I think sometimes we focus too much on the time horizon and that's fine. I think there is a time horizon element, but the truth is over a five-year point of view, these two things have to be orchestrated together. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a lot of what we've seen over the last 10 years, companies that sort of performance marketed their way up to a size and then kind of shrunk into obscurity. Then they're stuck. And you're stuck because you forgot about the building new customer part of it. And intent only comes when they know about you. And when you're out of that fuel, your company stops growing and pulling that together is going to be key for our industry. Well, we also get into the scourge of our business when we start measuring things on a last click attribution. I love it. A friend of mine gives this example. He says, if you walk into a bar with an intention to buy a beer and you go up to the bartender and the bartender says, hey, do you want a beer? Does she or he get credit for the sale? Right. <laughs> like, what? Come on. That's not the way the world works. I had intention to go buy a beer. <laughs> like, you know, but, you, but that doesn't show up in the systems. Hey, by the way, I was actually slacking in the background here just to make sure I have my facts right. We've only modeled the degradation of brand. We believe you lose about a third of your favorables. You know, those have been converted to believe in the brand. And I, I don't have the insight here to know if it's aided or unaided, by the way, in which we sort of assessing that. But uh, you lose about a third over a year period. Got it. Yep. So, you know, that's a big leaky bucket. You know, I will say too, Vinny, just interesting enough, we've actually found too, the other thing we found from the study is that this is modeled behavior. I don't have this for fact. The other stuff is for fact. 
But what we believe is that if you were to, over a two-year period, if you run pure brand, sales would be 40% higher over the two-year period than if you run pure performance. And that's not to suggest it should be pure brand. I'm not doing that. What it does suggest is that you and the CEO, Chris, the CFO, that you need to make a conscious investment decision. How are we playing the game? Are we here to make next year easier? Or do we have some reason that short-term needs are important to the business? That's a strategy. That's okay. And then we need to sort of balance that mix a little bit differently. The concern the MMA's had is we just don't have the tool. I don't think people have the appreciation of what you're saying. I'm concerned equally too. We've not really had the tools or the insight to make those decisions. Yeah, I think it's tools. I think you're right. The fact is though, no measurement system is going to be perfect, but arming CMOs is going to be very important. I think this leads to the other thing in our industry is it also comes down to CMO credibility in the C-suite because in a world where you don't have perfect information, which is the reality of innovators, disruptors, trying new things, this this idea of perfect information will never exist. So sometimes we have to accept a CMO as it comes down to our personal credibility in the boardroom as well, to be able to influence our colleagues, which are CFOs, CEOs, board directors, investors, just through the credibility that we carry. And it becomes like the self-fulfilling thing where like we don't think we can stand because we have the perfect information we don't have the perfect information, but at the same time, when we do try to stand, we kind of put our own industry in a tough position. We have to accept there's not going to be perfect information. We have to have the courage of our convictions, and we have to have the credibility in the C-suite to be able to influence with information that's 65% right. And that comes down to each of us individuals and the role we play in the C-suite. So given the roles that you've had, that's a very good question. How did you build that credibility with, and maybe if I could even be specific about with the CFO, let's assuming that she or he was your partner in sort of really figuring out how to invest through marketing into the business. How do you go about building that credibility, Vineet? I think it comes down to a couple of things. I think the first thing is, I always say, but I don't look at myself as a marketer per se, I look at myself as a business executive. You know, my last role in CPG was I was the president of a division, right? I wasn't a kind of a CMO in that role. And so I've always tried to approach the C-suite with a business executive mindset. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Like I sit on a couple of public boards. On one of those boards, I'm a CMO that's actually on the audit committee. Uh, okay. So I'm constantly <laughs> looking at SEC filings and things like that. So I have that experience. The other day, you know, our CFO is awesome here at Chime and we were debating cash on the balance sheet and I was challenging why we have that. You know, it's sort of like- um, You're equipped to have that conversation, what you're saying. I right, love that. And yes. you have to be able to, to me, the best C-suite executives do not see themselves as the functional head. They see themselves- as a C-suite executive, a business leader. And we have to really be careful how we're building the next generation of marketers because what's demanded of us now is to be in the C-suite and be able to go across product, tech, systems architecture, data science, and financials and not play the victim card. Like We need to have agency of being a holistic business executive and a full stack marketer and kind of just carry that torch into the boardroom. And sometimes I feel like we kind of on our back, our industry gets, because we've divided ourselves, we get on this back foot, we show up to the boardroom as protecting marketing or being victims of the situation. And we have to get over that. And the more we as CMOs can role model that in the boardrooms, 
in our organizations, I think the better that will be for our industry as a whole. Got it. Yeah, totally love that. Totally appreciate. I guess the challenge is then, how does a person who just came up to the through channels as a CMO then get that broader business experience? You've actually done some advanced work in finance, right? I saw you took some courses at Harvard around sort of finance. So obviously you did that post your original education. What'd you get your original degree in? I don't remember if I know. What was it? It was uh, in Canada, a business degree, a business marketing degree. Okay. So you got a business marketing degree. Okay. Okay. So you've had some of that broader experience, but you went on and got additional insight around finance, which is why you can talk about cash on the balance sheet with your CFO. Yeah. You know, it comes down to, I actually think this kind of leads to, you're asking, how do you develop this? It comes down to, actually, I think marketing in the way it is today is one of the best places to develop a really broad skill set by the time you get to the CMO. Let me sort of explain that for a second. So if you think about the specialist roles in marketing now, you've got MarTech people who are literally like basically marketing system architects. In the old world, you would have had a systems architect role in a CIO function, building out how the data pipes and all that work. I mean, if I'm doing a marketing career today, I do a MarTech role so that I understand technology, systems integration, data pipes, how data pipes feed into like predictive models that feed the ad platforms, right? What a brilliant experience. So in a MarTech role, you're getting this like tech sort of infrastructure experience. Then you can take another role in like performance marketing, which if you're really honest about it, it's almost like day trading. It's the ultimate financial role because all you're thinking about every day is, is every dollar I'm spending and the marginal return on that dollar better than the last one. If you think about it, that used to be the job of a finance team in the CPG days, yeah. right? So yeah. Yeah. now get sort of a return on investment, sort of marginal return set of experiences in a performance role. You go to a brand role and you start to learn the power of corporate reputation, brand positioning, all of these other things that are a bit more strategic and longer term, or you go to something like product marketing, which is getting more and more important in the technology world. And now you're attached to the product teams, developing the product roadmaps, understanding the insights to create products that have network effects and virality on themselves. So I've just described to you only four of the roles that are making up modern marketing orgs. If you can think about your career as a chess match rather than checkers, and you sort of build your way through your career in what I call a jungle gym approach versus a ladder approach, I actually think marketing is a great place to equip eventual CMOs with all the tools they need to do that if we play our cards properly. And this is why I'm very optimistic about the future of marketing. If we can crack the code on building these future marketers with sort of multivariant sort of skill sets. And I think that's really important for us. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this with Vineet Mira. Thanks for listening to Building Better CMOs. If you have a second, I'd like to ask a quick favor. Take your phone out and share this episode with someone else. It's all about making marketers better. You could text it to a coworker or a friend, easy, or you can post it on LinkedIn and tell people why you liked it. There's one other thing that you can do to help building better CMOs, and that's to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do it in the show notes. However you support us, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Greg Stewart. Now back to the show. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with Vineet Mera, the CMO of Chime. So Vinny, let's talk a little bit about that, that sort of idea about, you know, what it means to get to the C-suite and then continue to be there and be effective. So 
I think what I hear you saying, which I find very interesting, which is you're really saying like, hey, everybody, go build as many competencies, as many capabilities as you can in as many places as possible. Is that where you went? Did I say that differently than what you mean? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's largely what I say is chase experiences, chase not experience. titles. Yeah, yeah. Build totally. your career like a jungle gym, not a ladder. Yeah. And I say that because if you're playing the long game, you're going to be a much better C-suite executive Agreed. by drawing on experiences Agreed. than chasing the speed. Oh and my God, I agree. that's essentially the ball game. And marketing is one of the best functions, in my opinion, in a company to build that skill set. Like, tell me another function where you can go as wide as I just described earlier. You can't. And that's why I'm very optimistic about being a marketer. We tend to curtail the CTO a little bit from those kinds of things. Some break out, but you know, not always. Exactly. That's actually very smart. You know, I think you're right. So yes, build as many competencies in as many places you can and in many ways possible as you can kind of get to. I think what's funny, listen, I, and I'm a little bit older at this point, obviously in my life, but as I look back, I couldn't have predicted the career path. I couldn't have planned it. But it is absolutely an accumulation of every skill and capability and knowledge I built over time. It really is. And although you can't plan for the changes that are going to come, what you can do is prepare. Because the only thing that's constant is all this is going to change. I know that even today. So how do you prepare? You have as many things to draw on as possible. And by the time you get to the top roles, you're now a much more dangerous executive than if you had only one pathway to the top. But also, Tuvani, didn't you also, this is a good conversation here, you had a bit of a cheat code, if I can say, and I, I mean that respectfully, but uh, the cheat code was you got into tech. Listen, I've often said two of my kids have been graduating college this last year, once employed, so we feel very successful so far. Waiting for the other one. <laughs> but what's interesting is that the cheat code is I go, yeah, it's great to do what you love. It's better if it's in a growth industry. <laughs> and so tech, digital, mobile, now AI, this is where you can grow really fast and get lots of, I mean, that's what happened to me. I was the, I was the head of interactive at one of the Y&R agencies. They put me on the front edge of the internet in 1994 when the internet was introduced, and that has decided my career ever since. So I don't know, because you did that, right? You jumped out of J&J, went to Ancestry.com. I mean, as you said, you took a pay cut to go there even. So, you know, like you were really determined to get the additional experience. Yeah, that's the thing. I was always chasing experiences, but I would say you need all kinds. I mean, after Ancestry and we sold that business, I went out to Chicago and was a global CMO of Walgreens Boots. That was a $100 billion business. I didn't know how to explain that in my storyline, by the way. I knew I saw that coming. Okay. Yeah, we sold that business and I ran a $100 billion retail business, started as a CMO. My role expanded to the chief customer officer. Got it. And now I ran all the tech platforms, but that was not a hyper growth business. That was a legacy to digital transformation oh, business. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And by the way, I don't recommend running a retail pharmacy business in the middle of COVID. That was an yeah, unbelievable, that, yeah, questionable. crazy yeah. experience. But it transformed, <laughs> I mean, it transformed my skill set. We had to build digital customer experiences to vaccinate America and the UK, you know, at hyper speed. So different experiences are different things, you know, like they all give you something. And I think we have to reframe some of this in our industry and say that, again, chase experiences, not titles, chase learning, not pay. And by the time you get to the C-suite, 
I promise you, you're going to be a much more effective executive. And I do think we have a CMO crisis in the C-suite a little where our, some of the credibility of our industry is under attack. Agreed. And it behooves us to be the most dangerous executive, most well-rounded executive we can be in the C-suite. So we don't find ourselves as defenders of marketing, but as playing offense, not just in marketing, but across the whole business, along with all of our partners, so that we're not the only ones challenged, that we're able to create healthy challenge across the organization. And I think that's really what we should aim to do. There really is a crisis. I mean, listen, I realize that this is just supporting the thesis of the MMA. That's what the MMA is here to do. It helped raise the stature and gravitas of all markers, all CMOs, part of the point of this podcast. But, you know, listen, the net promoter score, I don't know if you saw this, the net promoter score for marketing departments, i.e., would I recommend this marketing department? So it could be the company, it could be marketing, we don't know, okay. But the way the question is, would I recommend this marketing department to a friend or colleague, the classic net promoter score, the on average, it's a negative 2%. And I'll be fair with you, I did not tell either one of my kids to go into marketing. And I love the business. I wouldn't have done anything else with my career. I wanted to do this since I was a kid. Like, there is something really wrong, isn't there? I think there is, but I would tell my kid to go into marketing because of all the things I shared with you earlier. It's the ability to build such wide skill sets that I think makes marketing an amazing function. I think what happened, Greg, and that's a very real data point. I was in the board meeting when you shared that. I didn't share this in the meeting, but my opinion is our industry changed so quickly over a decade, right? Like yeah, it adjusted totally so quickly over decades oh that by God. the time people were in those C-suite roles, the experiences couldn't catch up with the change in the industry. And so I think that it behooves us as leaders of our industry to ensure that that doesn't happen again. And so my real rallying cry is actually a few things. One, you and I may differ, but I have a 10-year-old I bring him to work on bring your kid to work day. I like, he is really excited about being a marketer one day because I don't know of another function where you get such a breadth of experiences as the modern marketing organization can give you today. That's one. So I'm overall optimistic. Okay. And I think we have a responsibility to make sure that the next generation of CMOs are much more equipped than we were, you know, getting into these spots. And we owe that. Fair enough. And listen, Vinny, you know the funny thing about my statement? I feel like this is one of those like I really have an obligation to disclose. My daughter got a job at NBCU. Now, the good note, just to be clear, she did get a degree. She got a degree in data science and finance. So she did the right thing. But yeah, I think what you're saying here, just to emphasize that point, is that the skills that got them to the top job are not the skills that the top job needs today necessarily. Yeah. And that's just the nature of how quickly our industry changed from under us. And that's why the only thing I know is 10 years from now, it'll be different again. So the only thing you can do is oh my prepare God. for change oh my God. by going after these experiences and being dangerous. Okay. What's the most important change they got to learn today? What should people double down? What do you got to spend your time? What should you be doing on Saturdays when you're not otherwise doing the job that we've hired you to do? What do you need to be learning? I mean, everyone's talking about it, right? But it's how AI is going to kind of transform the jobs of marketers, right? There's going to be jobs that are going to have co-pilots in AI. There's going to be jobs where AI is going to go after IQ before EQ type jobs. And we have to start to figure out and get ready to build organizations where 
automation is going to be increasing. The idea where AI, it's not fully automated, but it's almost like a co-pilot yeah. with you. Yeah. And then a world where the velocity of content and creative can increase much more. This is going to have a serious impact on the tools we use and how we use those tools. It's going to have an impact on kind of how performance gets maximized as a marketer. So if you don't know how to use these tools, you may fall behind other marketers that know how to use these tools. So they're getting 10x more output in the same amount of time if you don't learn how to use these things. And it's going to transform also how we organize organizational design of marketing teams in the future. I actually think this is amazing. It's a very needed revolution. We just have to get ready for it so that, again, this is going to be the next decade of shift. And we're going to have the same conversation a decade from now, maybe look back and say, some CMOs were ready, some were not. And so we really have to make sure that we keep that same experience-focused mindset to build our careers to get ready for that. Hey, Vinny, I got a funny question for you. So I'm listening to you here and I've gotten to know you a little bit. And I, you know, you and I have talked before back when you were Walgreens. I remember the advanced orientation you brought to that job. I remember hearing you talk about, I go, Jesus, this guy really is out there on the edge knowing what he's doing. Okay. I got into internet very early. I jumped into mobile. I'm now all over AI. Like I'm really good at the new stuff. So I love change. You got to love change. Let's assume you and I sit out in the bell-shaped curve where there's few standard deviations out from the norm. What do you do to help your team and your people become better and do that? Do you, do you have a way of sort of providing those opportunities for them? Because not everybody's ready to recognize that one, they're not ready to change. And two, they might not know where to go, what to do. And, you know, everybody's so inundated with their job today. They don't have time to go out. I don't know. How do you help that? Is there a plan around that? I mean, you're a startup, so I want to be careful here that you're doing a lot of extra kind of things with people. That's not usually the nature of business in your state, but I'm just curious how you think about that. No, I mean, look, we're doing a ton. I mean, we're a startup, but we're a very fast growing, very large startup now in the private world. And we're doing a couple of things. One, we are actively managing people's career paths in a very different way. There used to be a thou shalt not cross sort of thing in, in marketing career paths, where if you're a performance marketer, you can't get to to brand. Or if you're a brand marketer, you can't get to lifecycle marketing, right? Okay. And these okay. kinds of things. Okay. So we are actively earlier in career trying to break those boundaries. So when we now have career path conversations, we do a lot of succession planning, individual development plan conversations, like I'm sure many of my colleagues do. We are much more intentionally asking people to move around earlier in their career to Got different it. things. Got it. So there's a very intentional conversation happening at Chime around that. And we have quite a few examples of people that we've taken from previous thou shall not cross lines across lines. The key is to do that early in career because what happens later is you get like a career innovator's dilemma, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, exactly you're now making so much money in like brand that to take a junior job in performance becomes a very hard thing to do. So we as CMOs have to start this early in people's careers. And then the second thing is, I mean, it's somewhat cheesy things like, you know, we have a marketing book club, which is I kind of share everything I'm reading and we like share that with each other. Two weeks ago, we had a marketing offsite where we spent an entire afternoon on AI panels and I brought in the leaders of AI in the industry that I think wow. are leading the way. And we had panels and sessions and workshops on AI and how it's going to impact marketing. So I don't think it matters how big or small you are. I think ensuring that career paths are managed and we're really bringing the outside in I think is the key to it. And 
people are up for it. I've seen very little resistance to this. I think people just don't know what they don't know sometimes. Good. No, I love that you're giving room and space for that. Hey, the other thing too, what's interesting, you've actually worked in, um, I have a lot of background in VC because of venture, because I was out in San Fr- out in the Bay Area and was a venture partner. So I, I get that. But you've done, you know, PE back companies, you've done VC back companies, you've done private companies. Is there a different game plan for those businesses? Is there, how do you look at those when you're doing them? Um, what are the any advice you have for people? I have a lot of board members ask me about trying to get into the, with the PE guys more. So I don't know. I recommend everyone be a big C-suite public executive and a PE VC back sort of private executive. And the reason is, is simple. I think in the C-suite public executive, I think that's well understood. You get a lot of skill sets there. I, I think that's well documented. And, you know, I know you've talked about that a lot. On the private side, whether it's PE or VC backed, a large percentage of your board is made up of investors. And what do investors want more than anything? They want return on that investment. Yes. And so what you learn really, really quickly is how to talk the language of ROAS, how to talk the language of ROI. There's no room. You have X amount of cash between raises. And with that X amount of cash, you have to get from this many customers to this many customers to get to your next financial event, whether that's a new raise, an IPO, a sale, it doesn't matter. But it's really about constraint. The beauty of PE and VC back businesses, what you learn in them is that there is a constraint. You literally have X amount of cash in the bank and you have to get from place A to place B with that amount of cash. And many times in these companies, like we talk about the role of marketing. Actually, if you knew my percentage of revenue that's in marketing, it would make most CPGs look paltry in comparison. We're spending way in excess of 20% of revenue on marketing, right? So the pressure point of growth in a lot of businesses in this stage and with VC dollars is the return on investment on the marketing dollars. So I look at it as the torture test of CMOs being extremely return focused on everything they spend in a way that a public company C-suite job doesn't quite get you there because you have more room and more of a longer term orientation. So it's the mix of both that give you like these skills that I think you got to do. And I highly recommend both sides for marketers. Yeah, no, they really do. I mean, I think the thing I like about the PE from talking to my friends about it is that the people leading the PE come they have a very strong sense of like any dollar saved today is worth $17 later or whatever the equation is. And so everything gets scrutinized. Everything gets managed because it ultimately affects the return later. Absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's a set of discipline that's pretty, that not all businesses really have. Yeah, I think, and I think it makes us better. It's almost like having a personal financial return trainer every day beside you. And it actually, I think, makes us better as marketers. I'm, I'm really appreciative of these teams that I work with. Hey, we're going to wrap things up here in a minute, but I have a question for you. Just kind of occurred to me. What is it of all the skills that you have learned, the variety of skills that you've learned, what's the one, or if you want to go to non-marketing that has most benefited you in the role you have today? Could you give an orientation to that? Yeah, look, I'm going to go after all this talk about where the industry's headed and where everything, I'm going to go old school with this one, which is ultimately for what we have to do, it comes down to talent and hiring. You know, And I know that sounds cheesy, but actually in a world of specialism, if you don't know enough to be dangerous, being able to hire those specialists on your leadership team, you can make a lot of misfires. And so 
through mistakes, I think what I've learned is I'm getting better and better. My batting average continues to improve over the years in terms of being able to now hire not just for culture and fit, which I think what we did for a lot of years, to specialist competency. So if I'm hiring a head of performance, a VP of performance marketing versus a VP of brand versus a VP of product marketing, now specialism is rising to the VP ranks of a CMO's leadership team. Oh, interesting. And I actually think that that's one of the secret sauce. Like, how do you find those people that are specialists that are also outstanding cultural leaders and talent developers? And that's something that I honestly credit any success I've had to the teams that have been around me. And none of us have a perfect batting average. But over time, if you can increase that batting average, that's, I think, at a certain level in a company, the most important thing you do is hire great people. More and more, hiring great people doesn't just mean leadership. It also means people that balance specialism with leadership and getting that right, I think is critical. But some of that then is you having, so uh, listen, talent is everything. I totally agree. So it's knowing the gap and the specialty that you're trying to fill, understanding the variety that doesn't get. And but I, what I'm hearing you also say too is then be able to recognize those that do have talent in that area. I think you're kind of going after also. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's getting harder to do that because as people have grown up as specialists, they haven't always built the same leadership acumen that companies like CPG have built. Right. Then you've got that, can they sort of perform at this level in this way and be a leader in the business and help really support what needs to happen? Right. That's a whole other But even just understanding that sort of segment of what they do. Right. Yeah. We had a little, oh, I get you. We had a little situation here at the MMA. It turned out that uh, we had a problem, a technical one around sort of email deliverability that nobody here knew. And, you know, we now have brought in the experts to do it. But yeah, that really hurt us to not have that one had gotten right. I totally get it. Totally get it. So Vinit, listen, let's do this. I got a couple of questions to sort of wrap things up here. These are ready for you. These are kind of lightning round questions. You can go any, anywhere you want with these, right? So first one is who else in marketing? So it can't be a company you've worked with. Uh, it could be a person you work with. That's fine. But, you know, who do you kind of admire? Is there somebody outside of Chime? And it could be a marketer or it could be a company's work that you go, ah, oh, I wish we were kind of doing that. Or I've got full stack. I'm going to give you my three that I think cover the gamut for me. I love, always said, but the way Nike has remained culturally relevant over time, it's unheard of. And the way they build at that very top of the funnel is unbelievable. I think then if, you know, what Dara and the team did back in the heyday of Peloton, when they built that brand through community, I really think advertising, this is probably a whole other thing, is sort of dead. You know, it plays a role, but it's really about brands that are built through your community out. And what she and the team did at Peloton was truly amazing to build a brand through community. So Crazy. that's sort of the brand building part of it. And if I go to the last part of the stack, you know, you look at companies like booking.com that are, people don't realize, I think they're the first or second largest advertiser in the world. And no one really knows that. I think they spend three, $4 billion a year in advertising. And no one really knows that, but they've got that direct response, high intent, bottom of the funnel engine crack down better than anyone. So when I talk being a full stack marketer, take Nike, the cultural relevance of Nike, the community out brand building of Peloton, and the direct response engine of something like a booking. And that is what a modern organization should look like today. 
I think you've just identified what the three stools of your leadership team would best look like if you could white paper start all over. I don't know. That is kind of how we're organized, to be honest. I don't know. (laughs) I want to be a little careful about that. Okay, good. I don't know what I'm talking about there. Okay, listen, what's most overhyped in marketing today? What are we carried away with? What do you think we're too far over on? I don't know if it's overhyped, but I think the more we talk about the differences between brand and performance marketing, the more of a divide we actually create. We just have to stop that conversation, talk about it as one thing, and win back the narrative that has been taken away from us. Got it. Okay, good, good, good. And what's underappreciated in marketing today? It's happening more and more, but on public boards, the role that a CMO can play in sort of public board profiles. It's happening more and more as the job of a CMO continues to evolve. I think more and more boards are seeing the value of having a CMO on their board. But I think that's in early days and we're going to see a lot more of that over the next decade. Well, actually, I'll back that up with data because I happen to have done it. It was done by Dr. Neil Morgan and Dr. Kim Whitler, who I know both of them. I work with Neil today, and in fact, on things. And they did a study where they looked at the uh, boards. They looked at boards with marketers and boards without marketers. And boards with marketers had 3% higher growth on average. Well, there you go. I guess it's proving true. I mean, listen, you've sat on boards. The challenge of boards is that they're often construed of sort of investors, finance people, and legal people which are all about mitigating risk. And risk is not growth. You can't build yourself to success by mitigating risk. That's not the way the world works. And so somebody's got to say, wait, 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 what are we doing to go next here? Why are we not seizing that opportunity? How do we invest into that? This is a real problem. Okay, final one. Then I think I maybe know your answer, but I don't know, maybe put a new twist on it. We'll give you one more. What's the one thing that you think somebody listening today can do to become a better CMO? And, and they don't have to be a CMO yet. Maybe, maybe you can approach it from there in the job or you can do it like getting there. We may have been listening to this podcast, but, <laughs> but go ahead. I'll yeah, that. I'll give you kind of two related ones. The first one is build your career through experiences. Think of your career as a, like I said, a jungle gym versus a ladder. That's bucket one. And then two, I always say to people, and then bloom where you're planted. So what that means is when you're in that experience, go and kill it and the next experience will emerge. What happens to a lot of people is they get an experience, say, I don't like it, and they kind of retreat or don't put their full selves into it. Look at the experience as the exact thing it's meant to be, an experience that could be hard, could not be exactly what you want. But if you're playing the long game, you understand the role that's going to play. So bloom where you're planted as you're chasing experiences, not speed, titles, and pay. And I think you're going to be fine in your career. Yeah, I would agree. Stop trying to have so much control of it. Just try to do the best damn job you can when you're there in the moment. And listen, if it doesn't work over time, I got it. Maybe you got to make a change, but really like, yeah, dig in. Let's go, everybody. I listen, I knew this would be fun. I knew I was going to learn a ton. I love your perspective. Like I said, I knew you back at Walgreens. I listened to you there. You were bringing data into that company, which oddly enough, I don't think had as much at that time. And I saw you lead the charge. I thought that was super impressive. I'm so not surprised you're over in a business like Chime right now. It seems tailor-made because they really, you know, listen, it's a great company. Chris and team have done a great job, but there's a bigger brand to be built there. So go do it. And that is at the end of the day, that is going to be a data-driven customer experience kind of dynamic. So you're the perfect guy for it. So congratulations. Well done. Thank you for doing this today. Thanks, Greg. Great to be with you. Thanks so much again to Vineet Mara from Chime for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the description of this episode for links to connect with Vineet. And if you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, visit MMAglobal.com. Or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates, or really write me, Greg, at MMAglobal.com. Thank you so much for listening. 
tap the link in the show notes to leave us a review. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to LaSara Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you again in two weeks.